Good morning, campers. campers. <laughs> Today's activities will include a masquerade. Lunch today will be stolen champagne. And to end the night, we will be crashing an entire chandelier into the stage of Cabin 3. Uh, now put on your sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into the Phantom of the Opera. Woo! Oh, goodness. Starting out with a big one. Uh, we are. I'm, <laughs> I'm your camp counselor, Sam, an ex-pro wrestler in training and current drag wrestling manager. And I'm camp counselor, Sarah, a non-published, non-writing author, but it'll happen someday. And we're here <laughs> to ask, is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp. We are not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre. Mariska Hargitay, Sarah. Mariska Hargitay, Sam. Now, uh, I should specify, because there's about a billion different versions of Phantom of the Opera, we are watching the 2004 film, which is an adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Now, Sam, had you ever seen this before? Uh, I had. Uh, when so So this... Some movies have very distinct time stamps in my mind. Uh, I saw this on DVD in 2005, and I know this because uh, I had we had moved to Colorado, my family and I, and my grandmother had come to visit, and she said, I can buy everybody one DVD, and I said, ooh, Phantom of the Opera, because I wasn't quite aware that I was a little gay boy yet. I was like, what... <laughs> What could I say that's not homophobic right now? I know. I, I, and I watched it a couple times, and there were definitely, like, I was aware that the musical had existed. I did grow up in the 90s when it was huge. It was mm -hmm. absolutely massive. I remember the Princess of Wales Theatre in Toronto constantly had it on, or it felt like it constantly had it on. And... Didn't one of the guys from Kiss play the Phantom in the Toronto version? I don't know specifically, but that doesn't seem unlikely because he's very much a rule that requires like a big sort of... Um, you can't play Phantom quietly. And we're going to get to this in a bit, but it definitely is like a power ballad sort of role. And that oh, originates absolutely. from the writing. For sure. I, it, not just like the writing for the musical, but I remember as a young kid having watched the black and white Boris Karloff Phantom of the Opera, and even then, the the feeling of this over-the-top, like literally operatic character, even though it's a silent film, it was still very much like the whoa kind of happening, right? Exactly. There is nothing that you are supposed to be playing straight in this. Everybody is feeling everything so much. I mean, that's the point of opera, right? Your emotions are at the foreground uh, and everything is heightened, not just to 11, but we've broken off the knobs and you cannot turn it down. <laughs> that's the thing, too. When people, uh, there's the saying, you know, when people can't, hold their emotions anymore in a musical they start to sing and when singing can't do it anymore they start to dance and that is the level that this is playing on at all times 
so before we get into the background of the of this film, this play, this musical, this this book, um, we do have a small confession to make. This is episode one, but technically it's episode three. Uh, yes. <laughs> We have some lost tapes. There's 17 and a half minutes that we recorded over that no one will ever know the contents of. No, it it burned down in that warehouse with those episodes of Doctor Who. And it will, they will never be heard from or seen or smelled again. So I, I think before we start, an important thing to do is, what is camp? Why are we here? Why are we making this podcast and talking about camp? Um, so I think I've been going over this a lot in my head, and I th- I think there's a reason why you chose to title this with a question mark and an interrobang. Is I there's no one definition of camp. I think it's like that Supreme Court justice who said, "I don't know what pornography is. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it." I feel the same way about camp. There's a few things that you can say. Yeah, camp tends to show up when. There's this overwhelming sincerity and also overwhelming artificiality. And you tend to see it in queer films and things like that. But camp lives in your heart. Camp is what you believe to be camp. Yeah, I, I know for sure there's, there's a certain level in camp of so bad it's good or so good it's bad. And, and this sort of bizarre spectrum that popular culture, art, music, plays, films, television shows, all these things that we will be talking about in future episodes because we're not just limiting ourselves to films. Um, it's, it's this bizarre thing of, I hate this so much that I love it, right? Um, I, I just, I want to talk about this because I enjoyed the process of, of, uh, digesting this piece of media, right? Uh, and episode to episode, we will be essentially asking, is this property camp? Is it camp to me? Is it camp to you? Is it camp to the audience? And at no point do we want to say, like, yes, 100%, this is camp. And if you disagree with us, go to camp jail. Your <laughs> jail is already pretty camp. Well, I mean, I, 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 I've seen some musicals that involve jails, and there's a lot of finger snapping and twirling, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody wears a lot more high heels and lingerie than I expected. Yeah, it's weird that they can pull off such incredible numbers, given such limited amount of uh, physical activity time to choreograph these things, but... We digest. Do it. Blah, 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 digest. We <laughs> we're getting off the topic. Anyway, so that's that's what we're looking to do. Camp. Yeah. And camp isn't cheesy. Camp isn't so bad. It's good. They can intersect with those things, but I think it's very important to say that we are coming from a genuine love of these properties. I I love camp things and. There will be things that I will detest as we go and see. There will be things that you don't like. Mm-hmm. But our, our genuine, our goal is to go into these things and just speak the joy of what is the experience of watching this. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess that's a good place to uh, get into the background of the Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera. So if we go back to the very beginning, part of this is actually based on a real story. Why? So um, in the 1800s, there is a grand chandelier at the Paris Opera House. And one night, a counterweight falls out of the ceiling. The chandelier itself doesn't fall out. A counterweight falls out. And it kills a concierge who was there working on her first shift. Wow. Uh, <laughs> oh, I my know. God. She, she didn't even get retirement. She just... Oh, poor girl. <laughs> wow. I know. So, um, many years later, Gaston LaRue, who is a working writer in Paris, hears about this story, and he thinks, well, you know, what if it hadn't been a counterweight? What if it had been the whole chandelier? And what if it wasn't an accident? What if somebody had done it on purpose? Oh. And from this comes the plot of his novel, Phantom of the Opera. So, the novel Phantom of the Opera is set up in a very different way than we consider the story to be most of the time now. It's kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where the twist is the one thing that everybody knows about the story. In Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's supposed to be this huge reveal that they're both the same guy. In mm -hmm. The Phantom of the Opera, Gaston LaRue is basically writing a detective story in which he's going, boy, I wonder what's happening with all these different weird occurrences at the Palace Opera House. Oh. And then, many chapters in, you find out, oh, in fact, there is this guy called Eric, who's the Phantom of the Opera, who is this absolute genius architect, musician, uh, he can throw his voice, all of this, and he's causing all of these events. His name so, is Eric. His name is Eric, yes. He doesn't have a last name. That's, that's not a, a... It doesn't come across as a very operatic and romantic, dark, mysterious name. It's like... Eric. I know. It's like you you definitely went to high school with a couple of Eric's. It'd be like finding out his name is Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brandon, the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the novel is um, it's published very similar to um, Dickens, where it's published chapter by chapter in newspapers, and then it's released as one volume. Book's very okay. popular. Um, and it gets by the word? <laughs> I don't know, but I would assume so. Oh, did you know um, the guy who wrote um, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas, he yeah. was not paid by the word, he was paid by the line. So there is constant dialogue back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> because every time a new character speaks, you have to start a new line. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, these these guys and Dickens that they were good for them. I, I, I know, right? I can't blame them. Get that money, guys. Um, so the book is very popular in its time, and it continues to get adapted. Like you said, there's a version from the 1920s, a silent version, that's sort of the one that everyone can picture in their head. It's like this cadaverous look. Mm-hmm. Um, and it keeps getting remade over and over again. You know, it's a very popular, simple storyline. We've all seen like a dozen different kids' versions of it. There was a Goosebumps version of it. It's sort of, you know, you're, you want to explore this place, and it turns out there's somebody maniacal in the background pulling all the levers. There's your Phantom of the Opera story. It's kind of like Christmas Carol. You can plug and play with whatever characters you want. Yeah, like I'm genuinely surprised there isn't a... Uh... 
uh, Muppets Phantom of the Opera by this point. Oh my god, but okay, who would play the Phantom though? I think it has to be Fozzie. Gonzo. Gonzo would also work. Because he's he's a jack of many trades, right? He can shoot himself into the chandelier to cause it to fall. <laughs> um, so it's been a popular thing this whole time, especially because it's considered one of the universal movie monsters. It's up there with like Frankenstein and Dracula and all that. But it's a lot more like Frankenstein than it is Dracula because Andrew Lloyd Webber is the one who takes the decision we should make the monster sexy. Mm-hmm. So, um, he'd been thinking about making a, um, a Phantom of the Opera musical for a while. He was working on it with the producer Cameron McIntosh, who is also um, probably best known for producing uh, the London version of, well, the, the London version and then basically all subsequent English language versions of the Les Mis musical, because Les Mis started as a French musical. Um, so Cameron McIntosh is one of these guys, along with Andrew Lloyd Webber, he's kind of like a bastion of the English stage and also just disgustingly rich. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. He is disgustingly rich. So they watch the silent version and they watch a version from the 40s which stars Claude Rains which personally I've always thought Claude Rains was very sexy so I don't get why he's not considered a sexy phantom but anyway <laughs> they watch it and they're like mm, I don't really know if there's anything here now at the same time Andrew Lloyd Webber has been saying for quite some time that he wants to do a big romance um, he hadn't actually read the book at this point he's on vacation in New York he finds a secondhand copy of the book he reads it and he's like, this is it. I know what to do. Um, so it is an immediate smash hit in the West End. It is uh, the second longest running West End show in all of history. Um, wow. And the longest running Broadway musical of all history. I believe um, Les Mis beat it on the West End because Les Mis is a little bit older. Um, and uh, nothing beat it on Broadway. Nothing has run on Broadway that long. The only thing that stopped it was COVID. Oh, so it's still going. Yes, yes. You could, if COVID wasn't going right now, um, you could go see, I mean, you know, it's not the exact same production. They mix and match uh, people of throughout. Course. But yeah, Naturally. it has not closed because if your mom has been to New York and seen one show, she's probably seen Phantom. I, I honestly would not doubt that. I mean, the, 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 this, this musical became so ubiquitous. It, 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 I, I remember being a kid and knowing the titular track, The Phantom of the Opera, right? You don't know the rest of the music from the musical, or most people don't. Yeah. But that song, that's everywhere, right? People know that song, or at least they know how it goes. Exactly. That's the thing. Everybody knows that it was released. Um, the title song was released as a music video and as a single. Um, Perfect. Yes, it's very eighties. Um, the role of Christine Daae was actually written for Sarah Brightman, who was Andrew Lloyd Webber's wife at the time. If you mm -hmm. want, if you've never seen what Sarah Brightman looks like, imagine uh, like a Precious Moments doll. <laughs> because her eyes are half of her face. 
Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber thought that she was the greatest actress and singer of all time. History has not necessarily agreed with her, but he did write the role of Christine for her. And um, I mean, to to her success as well, right? Yes, absolutely. It was absolutely a star making turn. So good for her. Um, so then we come to the fact that this that this musical is one of the biggest. Um, I mean, you can't even call it a franchise, but it stacks up in terms of like this franchise, if you want to call it that, has made more money than the Transformers movies. It's well, I mean, huge. to be fair, the Transformers movies are nowhere near as good as this. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Um, so, in fact, it even wins the um, Tony for Best Original Musical, beating out Into the Woods. Because Into what? the Woods, I know, people are yeah. still salty about this. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Andrew Lloyd Webber, famous, uh-huh. like, oh, Sondheim, I'll get him. Got him? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the rivalry has played up a little bit. But, yes, he beat what I think you could safely call Stephen Sondheim's most successful, most beloved musical. I, I love Into the Woods. But then again, I am a sucker for things with witches in it mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, and a lot of uh, pitter-patter songs, you know, back forth, back forths mm-hmm. uh, and Sondheim is that to a T, he, that, that's his metier, that's his everything I've come to Sondheim late, I only started really listening to Sondheim in the last couple of years um, and I absolutely love Sondheim and they're both geniuses they're both just geniuses in very different ways. Yes, Andrew Lloyd Webber is far more pop theater, where Sondheim is very classic uh, music musical, right? Mm-hmm. The way that musicals should be designed, right? I have an I want song. We have a, a you know, a, a, what are they called? Not a, it's a French term. My brain is going into a blank. Just like a, a mixing up of identities, right? It, he, he hits on all those very classic notes, but he's able to mix them up so it's always fresh. Whereas Andrew Lloyd Webber is very much like, the music from now, more synthesizers, please. <laughs> exactly. And this, this music is so, so 80s. They did not shy away from that at all. No. Um, so what, then we come to the production of the movie again. So in the late 80s, Warner Brothers had purchased the rights to the movie. They were ready to start shooting. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber and Sarah Brightman got divorced. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, and this sort of tied things up, basically, you know, from what I understand... They were past pre-production. They were ready to shoot. And then the divorce tangled everything up because we're talking about rights and we're talking about who owns the rights and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me just find my notes here. Um, So throughout the 90s, they keep saying, we're going to make this movie. We're going to make this movie. We're going to make this movie. People are mentioned. People are backed down. Um... Uh, Joel Schumacher was selected for it from the very start. 
he was always and, going to be the director because he got the pick by Andrew Lloyd Webber himself. And do you know why he got the pick from Andrew Lloyd Webber? No, I do not. Uh, it's because of Joel Schumacher's incredible film, The Lost Boys. Andrew Lloyd Webber saw that and he's like, this is a music video. This is a full-length feature film that's also a music video because Joel Schumacher and that that script, that score, how he shot everything. I mean, I love Lost Boys. I think it's, it is a top-tier vampire film for sure. And you can definitely see the genesis for what uh, Schumacher would later be doing with his career. Oh, absolutely. And the idea of taking somebody who made a vampire movie and saying, here's Phantom of the Opera makes so much sense. Absolutely. Um, however, throughout the 90s, Joel Schumacher's career sort of exploded and then imploded. Um, he was making, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know, he was making Batman movies. Um, he made uh, Runaway Jury. He made Dreamgirls. Um so basically, this movie is in production hell the whole time. Eventually, Andrew Lloyd Webber says, listen, I don't like Warner Brothers dealing with this. I want to be in 100% complete control. And he buys the rights back from Warner Brothers. So now wow. Warner Brothers makes no decisions on this. You still see a Warner Brothers logo at the opening. Maybe they handled some distribution. But Warner Brothers had no part in the actual production of this film. Now, that's, that's odd, because I would have guessed from the way the film is shot and from how it comes across, is that this feels, uh, compared to how over-the-top Joel Schumacher does things in a lot of other films, this movie actually feels somewhat reserved. I think part of this is due to money, which we're going to get mm -hmm. into in a bit, and the other part of it is Joel Schumacher seems to be afraid of the fact that he is making a musical. Um, so first of all, money. So Andrew Lloyd Webber finances the entire thing himself. So nobody else can make decisions um, because of that. They don't have the resources that a studio would have. So for example, we see the sets and we see every single inch of those sets. Those sets are not very big. No, but there, there, is a, there is a sense of scale to them, and mm -hmm. there's a sense of scale in terms of Joel Schumacher being a competent director connects all these various sets together very well. So you yes, feel there like is a sense of place. It, like the sense of place is very much there. It's not disjointed. It's not like, how did we get here? You understand where you are through the whole film. But I, I get what you mean in terms of seeing every inch of every set. And a lot of times he has these very long takes and long shots where characters are walking what it feels like absurdly slow because they have to slow themselves down or else they're going to run out of set. <laughs> to give you an example, the chandelier falling is CG because the set wasn't big enough. Oh, wow. Now keep in mind... This is the famous thing that actually happens in the theater if you are there. Um, I saw Phantom when I was very young. I went with my dad. I was maybe uh, six or seven, I think. I was way too young, really, to see this. I just loved the music so much. Mm -hmm. I was so young that um, 
when <laughs> you know how theater seats uh, flip down when you sit on them. Yeah. I sat on it and it flipped back up on me. Oh no. Yeah, it like sandwiched <laughs> my legs into a little V. Um, and Sarah and then, was never heard from again. <laughs> I stayed awake through the whole thing, and then my dad was like, let's go for a treat afterwards. Let's go to Death by Chocolate. And I just about fell asleep into the chocolate cake on my plate. Oh, no. Oh, it's so precious. I didn't understand any of the psychosexual stuff. I was just like, no. oh, make music no. go boom, voice go up, <laughs> voice go down, Sarah loved. Well, to be fair, this this is... This is why I think musicals are one of the better forms of expression for, that an audience can just get because the, the emotion is over the top. You don't have to pay attention or understand what the characters are singing, but you'll get the, the feeling behind it. Yes, absolutely. So crashing a chandelier into the stage every night, super easy apparently. I mean, it's, they do it in a way, it, it happens just like in the film where the arc comes down and you're never actually close enough to touch it, but it feels absolutely horrifying, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, because this movie had been in production hell for so long, they kept getting all of these people who could have sung it and then... They weren't available anymore. So they wanted Hugh Jackman. He wasn't available. They wanted Antonio Banderas. He wasn't available. Um, eventually, they chose Gerard Butler because he had been in, wait for it, Dracula 2000. Wait, that's that's the thing that got him this role? Joel Schumacher saw him in Dracula 2000. It was like, yes, he is the only member of the cast who had not sung formally before. Oh, gosh. Um, and you sure can't tell. Oh, man. I, I mean, it's... Gerard Butler is a, is a very handsome man, for sure. And Joel Schumacher is a great big old gay, like me. So I, I can understand that part of it. Like, oh, ooh, let's get a handsome man in it. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, I actually have a somewhat personal story about Gerard Butler. Oh, go uh, for it. My, my mom was at a party with him once uh-huh. in the 90s, and he invited her up to the rooftop. To, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. And she said no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the story. My mom just likes to every once in a while poke in with, uh, you know, Gerard Butler once invited me up to a rooftop to gaze at the stars <laughs> but you you said no so where's the rest of this story going nowhere <laughs> but you know what it's always nice to be asked oh for sure for sure um i will point out that plenty of the people who have played the phantom before on stage are very very beautiful men you don't mm-hmm. need to necessarily have um somebody who's selling it in terms of looks, especially because the Phantom's not actually on screen that much. The whole point is that it's a Beauty and the Beast thing. He doesn't need to be sexy. His voice is the sexy thing. And that's the conundrum with Gerard Butler being in this role. And I would argue Emmy Rossum being in this role, because she has quite a pretty voice, but she doesn't have strength. She doesn't seem like an opera singer. No, no. I, like... 
watching this again for the first time since 2005, maybe, I was definitely struck with, boy, oh boy, is she a pretty singer, mm-hmm. but she's not an operatic singer. Yes, you you keep expecting her to reach these heights. Now, the heights that Christine has to reach in the stage show are so high, she actually reaches a whistle tone at the end of Phantom of the Opera that yeah. is so high it's dangerous to sing every night. And they're actually lip-syncing it, which is astonishing. Oh, wow. I, I never heard... It's, it's also part of the way um, that song is staged. There's doubles because they're supposed to be looking like they're moving around the stage because they're moving around the opera house right he's taking her down to the crypt so they use body doubles to make it look like oh they're up there and they're crossing the stage on this catwalk and now they're down here and they're in the boat um so because of that it's partly physically impossible for the actress playing christine to be everywhere she needs to singing but yes also they make her go so high at the end that it would damage anyone's voice to be singing that every night that's that's incredible i know i only learned that recently it blew my mind I I mean, there's there's definitely this this is a musical that I would love to see in the theater because after seeing the film, I feel kind of let down by it. That's the thing. This film does a lot that feels like they just filmed the stage version, and mm-hmm. it is a real letdown because of that. Because like the chandelier falling down isn't a big deal in the movie. I've seen that sort of thing happen all the time. Why is it such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because if you're sitting in the same room as it, it's a big deal. Exactly, right? And I can see how the wandering through the catacombs being played out on stage with all these body doubles going in and out of areas, that would be incredible to see. You know, just this, oh, it really is a maze. It's, she goes in one area, she comes out another, she's gone, she's here, she's there. And there's all sorts of magic tricks that are done, too. Same way, like, when he's on the the boat, the boat's gliding completely smoothly across the stage. And there's all Mm -hmm. sorts of fake smoke and stuff. But I'm six, and I'm watching this, and I'm like, this is amazing. I don't know how they do it. How do they get a whole river on stage? Exactly. Um, At the When you first see him appearing in the mirror, you see her looking in the mirror, you see her reflection, and then the mirror gradually changes, and you see him behind it. So it's all these sorts of... Music, not musician, magician tricks that are same as the they're illusions, Michael. Um, (laughs) Same as the candles coming up through the water and things like that. This is stuff that looks absolutely amazing on stage, but we've seen on film a million times. The reason it's impressive is because it's happening on stage. Yes, exactly. And from what I understand, the. the stage for Phantom is kind of like the labyrinth stage or the elf stage where there's so many holes and secret uh, openings and things like that, that it can actually be very dangerous to not know where you're walking because people are going in and out of it all the time. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that movie stagecraft magic. Mm -hmm. Um, So this all takes us to the actual movie itself. Would you like to take us through the plot? Yes, I would. So let's get into the details of it. We've already said it's uh, directed by Joel Schumacher, produced by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, the screenplay was actually written by the both of them, too. So you have Andrew Lloyd Webber's hands and, and Joel Schumacher's hands in, in basically every stage of this 
film. Um, and then we get to the cast, the important cast, I would say is Gerard Butler as the Phantom, or Eric, I guess. Uh, Emmy Rossum, young ingenue at the time, 16, as Christine. Part of the reason why this relationship is so sexless, I think, is because she is so young. She's so young, and Gerard Butler was 34 at the time. I, he is double her age. Um, Patrick Wilson as Raoul, and I don't know about your feelings of, pa- of Patrick Wilson. Uh, to me, he's a handsome man, but he has the personality of a tin of tuna. I kind of disagree. Before seeing this, I had only seen Patrick Wilson in one thing, which was um, the HBO version of, oh my God, it's coming. I can't remember, Angels in America. He is in the HBO version of Angels in America, um, okay. which he is absolutely great in. He plays... Um, uh, a Mormon man married to Mary Louise Parker, who's basically desperately trying to uh, suppress the fact that he is gay. And he wants to be a politician and he wants to be a good Mormon and things like that. It's an absolutely great role. Patrick Wilson's fantastic in it. Um, and I think it's kind of weird that he's kind of a movie star now with the Conjuring movies because, like you say, it's not exactly like he's bad it's just i don't look at patrick wilson and see movie star i see a guy who shows up does the work and then slips off my brain yeah it's weird because he's he's in the conjuring films where i mean they're successful people like them but i just i always see patrick wilson he was in watchmen as night owl he's very good in that i i went through a phase where i was obsessed with that film and he is one of the best things in it I haven't seen it since the theater, and because mm-hmm. I, like, I'm very much in the in the boat of, okay, Zack Snyder, let's get this over with. Um, mm-hmm. He he was also in uh, the Aquaman movie as Orm or Ocean Master, Aquaman's half brother. Sure, why not? Yeah, and it it all feels very okay. Why not? Let's He's- let's. Let's He's go, handsome, but like you never feel like anyone's going to be advertising a movie and starring Patrick Wilson. Yeah, like I think he really lucked into the Conjuring movies and their success because he'll be able to ride that boat for the next 10, maybe 15 years before he goes, I'm done making spooky ghost movies. Absolutely. He, but, yeah. however, is the best singer in this movie. He is. He actually is. And apparently he was one of the first people cast for the uh, film. And Raul can be a really hard role, too, because so often, you know, it's hard to make him not the drip or the other one or the obvious bad choice. Um, Mm -hmm. I think he plays Raul with a real charisma that actually makes you see why he's the right choice. I should just say here, because this is a thing that gets me crazy, because I love Phantom from such a young age, I've never really bought into the oh she should be with phantom thing um i think raul is a perfectly nice guy and i adore a stay wig um (laughs) 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 and this movie's really not doing the phantom any favors in terms of that either um but all this to say there's many different shades to raul that could come through you know he could be more possessive more angry and i think um 
Patrick Wilson walks the line very nicely on that. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So Patrick Wilson is your uh, is your good guy to the to the bad boy of the the Phantom in this. Uh, Miranda Richardson plays the ballet instructor, Madame. How do you pronounce her name? Madame Giri. Giri. Okay. She is the only French person in the movie. Yeah, which A is odd because Miranda Richardson is very English. And it's it's an odd choice to get Miranda Richardson too for this role, I think, because I I know her predominantly from her comedic work. Mm-hmm. Right? It's she she is a scenery chewer. She is over the top. Other people may know her from the uh, Harry Potter films or Black Adder. She's always Queenie and Black Adder to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the final person rounding out the cast that needs to be of note is one mini driver who I think she steals the show. Any scene she's in, this I was this was the read her. I was most interested in hearing from you. She's chewing that scenery. I mean, the only thing is she isn't allowed to sing because she isn't an opera singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have her voice dubbed over by clearly another woman. But her her facial acting, her body movements, how she's playing this absolute prima donna diva opera singer is so over the top and wonderful. Yes, she's a bad guy. Yes, she has no no moments of redemption. But you know what? Sometimes you just need a bitch. And she feels like she's the only one who is like, oh, a Joel Schumacher movie. Okay, I know what I need to do. Exactly. Right? She saw Uma Thurman in Batman and Robin and went, (laughs) gotcha. I'm ready for you, Joel. Yes, exactly. And there's a real freedom to not being one of the sort of love triangle players where you can play it as big as you want and it only serves the story. Oh, this this would be uh, if... If I was being cast in it and I had a choice of roles, it would either be her or one of the owners of the theater that I'd want to play. Oh, yes, because you show up. It's like um, Monsieur Thénardier in Les Mis. You show up, you do your song, everybody loves you, you're done. Yeah, but you also get to just be over the top and handle it. Yes, just... There's there's no subtlety to these roles, and I appreciate that Mini Driver went, okay, you won't have me actually sing. Guess I'm going to body act the fuck out of this. I love her pink on pink on pink ensembles, too. It oh feels like a God. little, like a fancy chocolate box. Oh, she is, she is the moment. When, when, when she's on screen... Your eyes are drawn to her, even in scenes like uh, like big ensemble scenes like Masquerade. Mm-hmm. You see her immediately. You can see the disdain on her face. You can see her, you know, loving her little dog just in the corner while Christine's doing something up front and you know whatever. Right? Yeah, this movie loves details happening in the corner so much so that it's really hard to know what Joel Schumacher wants us to look at at all times. But it feels like everything that she's doing is serving the character and not just being visual noise. Yeah. So this movie came in, uh, it was released December 22nd, 2004. And it has it had a budget of around 70 to 80 million. I'm sure that's 
they're saying around only because so much of it would have been from Andrew Lloyd Webber himself. <laughs> and, yeah, he doesn't have to disclose quite as readily as studios do. And it did come away with a box office of $154 million. So, you know what? That's a good return on investment. You doubled your money. And, I mean, it made, it made a star out of Emmy Rossum, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much Gerard Butler. I think he was still on the rise, and it wasn't until uh, later. Oh, it wasn't it's until only two 300. Years. Yeah, that's only two years later. Yeah, so when 300 came out, that's when Gerard Butler was all of a sudden, oh, look at this handsome uh, man. He can shout. Yes, exactly. And that's pretty much what he's been doing ever since. People are like, okay, we know what to do with Gerard Butler now. Exactly. So let's just get into the plot. Uh, the movie starts in black and white and fairly quiet, which surprised me. I actually thought there was something wrong with my copy. I was like, isn't this starting with uh, music? Isn't it, shouldn't it be right, right off the gate? But no, it starts very quietly as we zoom into a picture, 1919 Paris, at an auction being held in the now abandoned opera house. And an old Patrick Wilson in his old man makeup goes in to bid on a little chest with a monkey clapping its cymbals. And uh, Miranda Richardson is also there. I'm, I'm probably only going to refer to certain people by their actual character titles every once in a while because it's Patrick Wilson and Miranda Richardson at this point. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they're bidding on this thing back forth back forth and he wins hooray and clearly it means something to him because it uh when they play it it starts to play one of the later songs of masquerade uh and then it comes to lot 666 Ooh, spooky and at which point the the man running the auction is like, ah, yes, it's a chandelier. We've rewired it. It's going to be electric. And boys, can you show it off? And they dramatically pull off the cover on it and hoist it into the air and turn the electricity on. And as that happens, all of a sudden, the, this black and white world is springing to life. The cobwebs are blowing away as color enters into the room. It's, it's a very dramatic entrance, which I, actually, I really appreciated it. Because and it, it definitely, it the, mu- the music of the overture starts at this point, which mm-hmm. just starts out with this, and then, bah, 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 um, which just drama, eleganza, everything you want. Exactly. And this, this is the level that you want the rest of the movie to be. And somehow it comes just shy of it. Now, the weird thing about this framing device is it's, it's expanded in the movie, um, but it does exist in the show because um, he didn't really want to start, he, Andrew Lloyd Webber, didn't really want to start with an overture because this overture is a big, big wave of noise at you. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't really make sense to start your overture with, like, people are still getting to their seats and then... Um, so that's why he created it. And in the theater show, it's the same. The chandelier is on stage and it gets hoisted up. And it's not quite the same with the dust being blown off everything. But it's this sense of um, of scale and volume sort of thing. This is how the overture plays in 
the actual theater. The chandelier is hoisted up, and you're like, oh my god, this is amazing. The show hasn't even started yet, and I've seen something that I've never seen before. Yes, I, I can definitely see how this would play out in the theater. And the just like imagine being in the audience in the first showing of this of this play and watching as this chandelier is hoisted up to the ceiling and the world comes alive. It, it, Absolutely. it must have been breathtaking because something like this had probably never been done before, or now, at least not to this scale. No. Uh, I mean, Miss Saigon, which I think came out after, Miss Saigon is another one of these things where like, it's less known for the story than for the sort of gimmick, which is a, a life-size helicopter landing on the stage. I've seen Miss Saigon in person too. Like, no, the, the the helicopter is like basically lowered down, like you would a flat. Um, mm-hmm. It has nothing on the chandelier. Um, but I completely agree with you. The blast of dust and color coming back into the world is really just an amazing way to start this. And yeah, it is really cheesy, especially with the uh, guitar riff coming in. But you're like, mm-hmm. okay, I sort of feel this. I, I do remember sitting in the theaters when I saw this the first time. And uh, and that I was so excited to see the movie. I'd been waiting for ages. Um, and the electric guitar riff comes up in the overture. And I was like, oh, this is cheesy. And it literally <laughs> never, <laughs> never occurred to me before. Yeah, it works in a theater it really doesn't work in the movie. No, no, because a movie, a movie. First of all, movies don't really have overtures unless it's over the opening credits, and this does not choose to do it over the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also go for something like Hamilton, where Hamilton also starts without an overture because it's just it just goes, and then it starts because they're like, eh, we don't really want to do an overture; we just want to go straight into the story, that sort of thing. But then you're blasted straight into the story. You don't have to sit there for three minutes while they then play the overture. Yeah. So the colors coming back into the world, the, the, the opera house is now clean of cobwebs and stuff. And you're seeing the theater, the performers, the background people. You're seeing all these denizens of the theater itself scrambling around to uh, rehearse for the grand performance of Hannibal, headed by the soprano Carlotta, played by Minnie Driver. And it's it does a very good job of establishing who these characters are. Right? You get to see what people do just with their bodies in terms of, you know, Madame Giry is running around, getting the ballerinas around. You see Christine being the young, wide-eyed, bright-faced ingenue, and, ooh, ooh, I can't wait to be out there. And Carlotta being just repulsed by anyone being near her, stepping on her gown. Oh, look, you've got my dog. I love my puppy. So it, I think it works really well to help establish who all these characters are. And with the bonus of it being a movie, is that we can focus into each character person by person by person as we're going around oh look here come the new owners of the theater oh and who's this riding in on a coach standing up for some reason it's patrick wilson and his um hair (laughs) you know what i 
Natasha <laughs> Romanoff has better wigs. Natasha Romanoff has better wigs. It's it's a choice. It it's certainly choice. is. Is it me or does it feel really anachronistic as well? Um, like everybody else. I feel like else, it ought to be tied back or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Like everybody else has their hair quaffed or set or pulled back or done something with with and here comes patrick wilson with his 90s grunge hair but it's clean 90s grunge hair i would argue he has orange juice can curls at the end yes and there's something about just the hair just the hair can you tell that this is a podcast being discussed by (laughs) (laughs) a, a, a drag queen um yeah it's 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 a choice it's it's very much like christine's makeup later on where you're going i can't stop looking at his hair i can't stop looking at her eyeshadow um Mm -hmm. this is not how it's supposed to be in a major motion picture no all right let's let's keep moving through this this plot so uh they're going through the rehearsal the new producers show up they're told, oh, um, the, the old producer is leaving because of his health. Turns out he's super stressed running this place because, um, yeah, horrible things keep happening. And, oh, what should happen right now? But a big piece of scenery comes down and almost clocks Mini Driver in the head. And While everybody's all... It's a, <gasps> it's a, it's a note. It, yes. And it's, it's, oh, goodness, oh, oh, what's this? And here comes Madame Giry with the note that the Phantom has left. And they read it out and they find out uh, that he does not want Carlotta singing. He wants Christine. He wants um, the, the, the musical to be formed this way. And, I, and also he expects to be paid 20,000 francs a month, which I, I don't know about conversion rates, from 1880-something That's the thing, now. too, because, you know, nowadays everything's in euros. Like, I grew up in the 90s being like, Europeans, like, 10,000 lira. It's like a dollar or something. But with the fact that everything's in euros now, I've completely given up on being able to do any other conversions. Exactly. So one can assume that 20,000 francs is probably a very hefty sum. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because who is this guy? Who is he telling people? Like, there's some weird man in the basement that controls everything. Why haven't we gotten rid of him? And also, he wants Christine to be the lead singer. Christine's a nobody. Christine is a background dancer in ballet corps. Oh, she's not a nobody nobody, though. She is an orphan, and an orphan of... Uh, a uh, her father was a very famous violinist, so apparently that has some clout to it. Mm-hmm. But still, it confuses people. Why? Why are we? Why do we want this girl to sing? And the producers bring her over and say, "Okay, just sing this song that Carlotta was singing, and let's see how you feel." And she starts singing, and everybody there reacts as if. Like the heavens have opened up 
and a beam of light has come down upon her and she's raising up into the air and the spirits of long dead sopranos are flowing through her when really she's she's a she's a good singer it's fine yeah but she's a good singer in terms of she would be the best singer at her church yeah it's and there's nothing there's nothing particularly powerful about the way she sings when carlotta sings she has power behind it you know she is an opera singer but listening to christine you're like okay like we can see that you'll put out a pop song in a couple years and you know do fairly well i guess absolutely i was actually thinking last night that ariana grande could play this role really well because she's got the huge um range in her voice but she also despite how tiny she is she has power behind it too mm-hmm. you want somebody if you're going for a pop sound you want somebody like a mariah carey and ariana grande a whitney houston type of voice where yeah they have the range but they also have the power exactly and this is not this is not to emmy rossum's fault no, I, and no. i understand that this, emmy is, this is the thing is, i will return to for lame is too it's not russell crowe's fault He's not a bad singer. He's just miscast. And that's the same thing with Emmy Rossum and Gerard Butler. Well, Gerard Butler isn't a good singer, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Exactly, right? I I mean, we are talking about the woman who would get cast as Bulma in the Dragon Ball movie. Sure. Yes. Yes. If you did not know that, congratulations. The (laughs) live-action Dragon Ball movie from about 2007 starring Emmy Rossum. I have. I had no idea this existed. Oh, oh no! <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna wrinkle your brain a bit further. Okay. Uh, do you know anything about Dragon Ball Z? Dragon Ball. Um, I know that it's like a fighting show, and it's notorious for how long they stretch the fights out. And sure. I know that there's a green guy in it. Okay, so that green guy, in the feature film, in the live-action American feature film called Dragon Ball colon Evolution, is played by, played by one James Marsters of Buffy fame. That's a choice. It's a whole lot of choice. <laughs> he is um, very green in that film. So, like, they painted James Marsters green? Yes. Yeah, I'm thinking there's a reason I haven't heard of this movie. (laughs) Maybe one day we might get to it in this podcast, but I I distinctly remember seeing it and just being like, oh, I didn't like this. And then forgetting everything about it. So anyway, uh, continuing on with the plot of the film. As she's singing, uh, which song was it? I can't Um. remember. I think it's Think of Me. Oh, Think of Me. Yes, Think of Me. Um, it, the camera pans around her, and using the, the power of technology, it goes from her at the rehearsal to her at the opening night. And, you know, the, the auditorium is filled with people, all, all of them being, oh, this is amazing, and oh, it's so wonderful. And she sings. She does a great job. A genuinely Hooray. great song, too. Not performed to its best by Emmy Rossum, but a great song. No. I love that song. And it, it, this, again, this is, this is the, the power of Andrew Lloyd Webber. He is very good at making memorable songs. Like, this, this tune is nice and simple, and it can stick in your mind and sung by the right person. It's wonderful. 
Oh, and we never actually went over who else um, wrote this. So there's actually three lyricists on this. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so Jim Steinman was recruited first, but he declined. Um, now, Jim Steinman, you will know best as a power ballad guy. He wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart. He wrote, um, uh, oh, what's that? Um, Anything for Love, but I won't do that for Meatloaf. Oh, Meatloaf, yep. Yeah. I would so, do anything for love. love. So you can yeah. see that it's definitely that sort of caliber would fit perfectly. Um, gotcha. Alan J. Lerner was, um, wrote on it for a little bit, but then he got sick. The only stuff that's really in there that was his originally is Masquerade. And then Richard Stilgo, who also wrote with um, Angela Webber on Starlight Express, wrote a lot of the other stuff. Now, again, um, all of this, because the show was sort of reworked over and over and it had all of these different people coming in and going out, um, it's hard to say, you know, one person wrote the lyrics or one person wrote most of the lyrics this is still very much an Andrew like Weber show mm-hmm. and it, it definitely has that feel there's there's reprises there's little callbacks in the just the orchestration to previous songs and he's 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 made a career out of this for a reason mm-hmm. so uh think of me ends Big round of applause. It's the end of the night. Uh, Christine is escorted back to her uh, her powder room, her green room, filled with flowers. And that's where she uh, discusses that she was coached by the angel of music. Yes. So she tells Meg, Madame Jerry's daughter, who is also in the ballet corps, that when her father was dying. He said, I'm going to send you an angel of music to watch over you. Um, something that this movie makes explicit that I'd never really considered before was that when she came to the ballet she was maybe seven and immediately the angel of music began visiting her Mm -hmm. uh, and coaching her on her voice which is a bit creepy oh definitely (laughs) like it's not creepy enough that Emmy Rossum was 16 but no they had to make explicit oh he's been visiting her since she was seven He's been grooming her since she was Ooh, seven. Absolutely. Uh, and, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this in a bit, but the Phantom gives me wicked incel vibes. Oh, absolutely. He lives down in his basement, and he's so mad after everything he did for her. Mm-hmm. He gave her so much. And this is, this is part of what happens, right? I mean, she... she has a talk with Meg, she talks with Raul, and she's she's in her dressing room as she's staring at the mirror, and oh, ooh, all of a sudden this smoke starts coming in. Ooh, spooky, where's it coming from? And in the mirror appears her angel of music, the Phantom of the Opera. Now, he's she's never seen him before. He's never let this happen. No, all this time, just he's been, just been a disembodied voice. Yeah, which... I mean, Christine, honey, sweetie, pumpkin. If a disembodied voice has been teaching you to sing for 10 years and coaching you and grooming you, wouldn't at some point you have talked to somebody about this? The other thing, too, is she believes that it's her father's ghost, which adds just a nasty, nasty uh, pallor to this whole thing. But she's like, yeah, so my dead dad has been coaching me all this time. He's a musical great. The opera ghost is a musical great. It makes perfect sense. I didn't need to tell anyone. 
Yeah. So she's she's whisked away behind the mirror into a series of tunnels and catacombs. Um, and it's downstairs through corridors that have you know disembodied arms holding uh, sh- sh- uh, candelabras. And then she gets on a horse for all of 30 seconds and gets off and <laughs> gets into a boat with him because now, I mean, it, understandably, this is in Paris. There are catacombs beneath Paris. Uh, there are waterways as well. So totally understandable. But in, in the truly grand... Joel Schumacher, I learned this move from working on the Batman movies. There are just these enormous statues. The architecture of this place is incredible. Giant muscular statues holding up the ceiling in that, like, oh, shouldn't uh, Robin be swinging from one of these kind of way? <laughs> there's, a, there's a feel to this sequence, too, which is happening while they're singing Phantom of the Opera. The um, titular song phantom of the opera this is this is the song of the movie this is like if if you walk away from this play from this film with any song in your head it should be this one now there's some weird things in this for number one the actors aren't performing the song it's just playing right now and there's sort of it's sort of this dream-like environment Christine kind of seems hypnotized the whole time. Um, and that's another thing, too, is between um, undressing from her uh, from her stage costume and the phantom coming to pick her up, uh, she applies much more eyeshadow. She gets this big, big extension of curls. She kind of looks like Cher in the uh, If I Could Turn Back Time video. Yes. She's wearing a negligee. Um, and things like the Jean Cocteau Beauty and the Beast uh, candelabra arms. We know that these don't actually exist because we see Meg go into the exact same corridor later and they aren't there. So it kind of feels to me like there's this suggestion that the Phantom has her hypnotized, has her under his spell. But just how much that happens seems to sort of vary from literally from shot to shot. Now, my, my, my brain immediately went to well, is it possible that the smoke he's pouring in is filled with some kind of drug? Because this is the time of let's easily get drugs. Oh, yeah. And you know what? That makes perfect sense. I just wish that they had explained it because it's certainly within keeping of I'm the Phantom. I'm excellent at everything. I can do whatever. Yeah. And and that, that part to me is also shocking. He is impeccably dressed. He has slicked back hair. He is an artist. He is an architect. He's a magician. He is a singer. He's he's all these things on top of being, quote unquote, hideously scarred. But somehow (laughs) he's got access. And we're going to talk about that. Holy shit. Um, But somehow he's got access to all of this stuff. He's being paid every month by, by whoever owns the opera house. But like, is he going out into Paris and buying stuff? Like, just popping around the apothecary and being like, yes, I would very much like to purchase your uh, hallucinogen gas. Well, part of it 
and this is going back to the original novel, it's not touched on as much in the show, is that he is a legitimate genius at absolutely everything he chooses to set his hands to. So, you know, if they wanted to show him with a mortar and pestle, that wouldn't be out of character. But I think it also suggests that he has sort of um, an army of people. It's sort of hinted that Madame Giry uh, does things for him. And Mm -hmm. I would... I would say it wouldn't be unusual for him to have more people like that who might not even know that they're employed by the Phantom. Hmm. Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a whole thing. Anyway, they, they get to his lair, and they're singing, and she hits that high note, and he hits his, his long notes. Um, and even though this is the title song, I'm sort of let down by it. It feels really short, and... It also feels like, well, we're done with that song. Let's move on to music of the night. But but that was a really good song. Can we go back to that one, please? And it's never really, like, the the motif of the song comes up maybe two or three times in the rest of the film, but that's it. Mm -hmm. And music of the night, I would argue, in... I, I hate to keep going back to in the show, in the show, in the show. But mm-hmm. when you realize that, you know, this movie was made because the show was so popular, um, these are things that work in the show. So in the show, um, Music of the Night is this very slow sort of seduction song, um, a bit like uh, Point of No Return in the second act. Mm-hmm. And when you hear somebody sing this, um, I'm going to say Ramin Karamloo because I love Ramin Karamloo. Um, I love him as the Phantom. If you see the 25th, the 25th anniversary concert, he's the one portraying um, the Phantom. He's also in this movie, by the way. He, uh, when you see the portrait of Christine's dad, that's Ramin Karamlin. Oh, oh, good for him. Yes. Um, so he has since played, he's played Raoul several times. He's also played the Phantom in Phantom of the Opera. He also originated the role in the sequel, Love Never Dies. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> we'll get to that at some yes. point. Um, so when you listen to that, it, Ramin Karamloo, it's just him, you know, basically standing on stage serenading Christine. But you can't tear your eyes away from him because his voice is so beautiful. Whereas this, I'm like, oh my God. Like, we don't even get Emmy Rossum in this song. Yeah, it's this, this whole part here. Every, every time you're in the Phantom's Lair, I want it to be more. I want it to be extra. And it feels small i think this is due to set again it feels like they shot it in part of pirates of the caribbean yes yes it very much has a a um a theme park ride vibe to it which is it's it's just unfortunate right Mm -hmm. but you you feel uh, like the everything that you're not seeing is unfinished there's no sense that it extends beyond the camera in any way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she he shows her around his, his bedroom lair thing. You know, look at all the things I make. Look at this creepy wax doll that I made of you. And she immediately faints because, A, it's very lifelike. And, B, it actually is Emmy Rossum just done up a little bit. She's got sort of the um, bye-bye-bye music video makeup to make her look more plasticky. Yes, exactly. 
And so she faints, and then she comes to an indetermined amount of time later. And she's... Cue me thinking, Archer, like, oh, that's super bad for you. Yeah, that is super bad for you. But this is back in the time where cocaine was was prescribed for everything. Mm -hmm. She probably probably... had hysteria. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing a good um, hysteria machine couldn't help solve. Which the Phantom (laughs) would be glad to provide at this point. He's made one himself, and it is steampunk as fuck. (laughs) Yeah, watch the exhaust pipe. (laughs) It's spooky. It it also provides the smoke for his lair. (laughs) (laughs) So she she's curious. She's wandering around. He's he's playing the organ, and it's also a very tiny organ. I always think like if you're the fans of the opera, you're gonna have a massive organ. And this went to a very bad place. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> naughty. No, naughty. Um, and while, 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 he's playing, yeah, yeah. while he's playing around with his organ, um, she tears his mask off. And immediately he's hand covering his face. Ah, oh, damn you. You know, and, and singing in his Gerard Butlery way. And you get that he's scarred, but the way he's holding his hand, you're like, oh, there's not much that looks scarred because he's got his fingers wide open and you can see his eye and you're like, oh, you need a mask for what a palm can cover up? That's the okay. thing. <laughs> um, and it's later revealed, too, that he's wearing a toupee as well. Um, yeah. Which, which doesn't come off at this point. I don't know why. Um, and you can't help but think of like Lon Chaney and think of that cadaverous look. And mm-hmm. the, like you can cover this with not even your whole hand. Like the Lon Chaney one really sticks in the mind, right? It's these sunken eyes. He had to use piano wire to hold his nose back and Ooh. hold his cheeks up and his mouth open. And then, and then they put makeup on top of it. And to see this Gerard Butler version, you're kind of like, you're just Gerard Butler with a bad case of eye socket eczema. Now, that's the thing, too, is when you see the poster for the movie, it's like a full full face mask. Um, mm-hmm. It just sort of stops below the, uh, the cheekbones. Um, now, the reason why that's like the symbol of the Phantom of the Opera is because they were like, okay, here's our logo. Can you sing in it? No. Okay. Um, so they had to, and the, um, the, the performer's usually mic'd too. So they had to fit his mic in and still allow him to sing. So that's why on, on stage and then in the movie, you get just this half mask. And I feel like if they committed to a full mask here, it might have, sort of like he wears later in the masquerade scene, you could have suggested something more horrific. Yeah, and I was I was definitely expecting horrific, right? Because that's that's the point, right? How could anyone look beyond this and see the quote-unquote gentle artistic soul inside? You're not a gentle artistic soul. You're an incel. Exactly. So right? yeah, at this point, he says, "Now that you've seen my face, uh, we have. I can never let you go." Uh, and she promptly friend zones him. Yep. I mean, good for her yep. for standing up for her shit. But uh, he says, "Like you can't, you can never leave, 
and then promptly allows her to leave. Yes. It makes no sense. <laughs> so she goes back up to the surface world and everybody's all, oh, oh, goodness. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, because they've all received notes from the Phantom because he's also had the time while Emmy Rossum was passed out to write everybody and everybody gets a note saying, hey, do this, hey, do that, hey, do that. And the final one is saying, you'll be putting on uh, what the Duchess? Il Muto. Il Muto. Il Muto, Il Muto where Carlotta is to play uh, the, the Countess. And normally, Christine plays the silent role of the page boy. And the Phantom is making it very clear that Carlotta is to play the silent uh, page boy, and Christine is going to play the Countess. Now, what did you think of this song? You mentioned earlier that you like patter songs. I, I really enjoy patter songs. I like this fast back and forth um, and overlaying of I'm singing a distinct set of words, and you're not singing a distinct set of words. You're singing your own distinct set of words, but then both of our sentences meet up to sing the same thing. It's, it's, a, it's a bizarre technical know-how that uh, Lloyd Webber, he's good at it, but Sondheim is a genius at it. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen Into the Woods, if you've ever seen uh, Sweeney Todd, they're rife with patter songs. Uh, Into the Woods, the best example is uh, Your Fault. Where, now, see, I was immediately thinking of Into the Woods. Da, 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 da. They each have this same phrase, but it's for to, to get the cow to see Grandma. Yes, but I think Sondheim really masters it for your fault, where you've got five characters singing together distinct parts. You have uh, the baker, Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, Jack and the witch all singing together and pushing the blame as to what's happening onto each other with it finally culminating on, oh, the four of us realized the witch fucked us over. So she's the, at fault. She's the one. I, I could give you the whole thing right now, but uh, that would really take away from fans of the opera. Anyway. Sondheim, it's a great crescendo, too. It still moves the plot along. It does. And then it goes directly into... Um, oh... Children will listen. Mm. But here, yes, the, the pitter-patter song is them talking about their various notes and then deciding at the end of it, no, fuck it, we'll, uh, we'll put Carlotta on in, again instead and Christine will be the silent page boy because what could possibly go wrong? Now, see, I do not like... I, I like patter songs. Um, this was one of my favorite songs on the CD when I listened to it growing up. Um, mm-hmm. But I do not like it here. I think Simon Callow and Kieran Hines are fantastic actors. I love seeing them in anything. But yes. I, I think they're both not playing to their strengths here. They need to be extra. Extra, extra. Yes. Both of them are sort of... Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? it feels like they are the opposite of Patrick Wilson they have a sort of star quality and they're deliberately repressing it to be in these minor roles maybe because they're not American famous 
Oh, but, but they're they're British famous. They are absolutely British famous. Um, and I love them, but this is, like, I want to see Karen Hines as Julius Caesar. I want to see him as the king in the north. I do not want to see him as an administrator. Or if you're going to put them as administrators, you let them run rampant. Mm-hmm. You, you give them the same energy that Mini Driver is doing, but in their own specific managerial way. They have this ongoing joke about, you know, we made our money in the junk business. No, in the scrap metal business. And yes. the joke falls flat every time. Yeah, it, it should be more embarrassed by the fact, and but earnest about the fact that they are scrap metal. Exactly. So, yeah, this this happens. The Il Muto ha- uh, goes on, and it's fun. It's it's enjoyable to watch the the parts that we do see. Um, you know, it's it's that over the top sex farce uh, musical with a lot of innuendo, winking to the audience. The audience is super into it, and Carlotta has a bottle of throat spray off to the side. Uh, Which we have seen before. Therefore, Uh it's not out of nowhere. Yes, it's it's come up several times. And the Phantom, in his Phantom way, mysteriously, with his gloved black hand, comes in and switches the bottles. And the Phantom has been doing this the whole movie. And will continue to do this, like, off to the side, my gloved black hand comes in and moves one thing over, or locks the door, does something... But it's constantly also with the thought of somebody is seeing him. That's the thing. Joel Schumacher is constantly showing us that every single room, every single inch off stage is packed with people. Yeah. It's the same thing when he locks Christine into her dressing room. I'm like, weren't there just 20 people out there trying to talk to her? I mean, the, the camera pans from him locking the door and taking the key slightly up, slightly up to Madame Giry looking at him and yes while we understand that she's kind of an accomplice to him like if she can see him who else is seeing him and shouldn't he be kind of worried about her seeing him Uh, it's 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 not so subtle no it's it's very much uh wouldn't it be spooky if he locked her in and forget about the fact that we just showed you this hallway was crowded that's not important right now yeah. So that's that's what we're dealing with. He switches her vocal sauce, <laughs> <laughs> her vocal sauce for another one filled with something, and she gets out to sing, hits a note, and it comes out not just flat, but also several octaves lower. And oh no, everybody's shocked. Quelle horreur! And Immediately, curtains come down, and everybody's in a kerfuffle, and the producers come out, and they say, uh, don't worry, uh, we're immediately replacing Carlotta with Christine, because everybody loves her, right? You loved her. Cool. Um, in the meantime, we're going to go to uh, a dance number. Y'all like dance numbers, right? And the dance number goes on, and you can see the, the actors rushing around trying to get things going. You know, Panic. At the disco. <laughs> uh, and There's panic in the streets of Paris. Yeah. 
And it's during this performance that the Phantom decides, okay, they're really not taking me seriously. Time to murder someone. So he finds uh, the stagehand, uh, Mr. Bouquet, or in England, he would be known as Mr. Bucket. God damn it. I was just <laughs> about to make that joke. Yes. Yes. I got there before you. <laughs> we'll it's talk, pronounced Bucket, actually. We'll talk more about his great-great-grandniece, uh, Hyacinth, uh, in a future episode, I am certain. Uh, but there's there's been this continuous line from Madame Giry of keep your hand at the level of your eyes. And the reason being that the Phantom loves a good old noose. He loves hanging people. And how, how would you keep yourself from getting strangled by a noose? You keep your hand up. Oh, no, it went over your hand as well. Good. I can keep it away from my throat. He manages to uh, corner Mr. Bucket on the... Uh, the the rigging up top, and then hangs him in the middle of the performance. Oh, shock and error, right? He's like right in the middle of the stage, and he dies. And uh, everyone's super sad and upset. And we would not be really. upset, too, if we had not seen every single step of this fight. Like, this, this death is supposed to be a big surprise to us because we're just watching a ballet, and it's going on for so long that we're like, is he just like, fucking with us? Is he just doing it to prove that he can? And then, boom, dead body. Yeah, and uh, this this interruption in the musical causes Raul and Christine to flee to the rooftop where they, de they declare their love for one another. And of course, who should be listening but the Phantom. So they go, mwah, 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 I love you, I love you too. Cool. Guess uh, no one needs to know about this. They they leave, and the Phantom swears revenge. Yes, again for something that nobody promised him. Nobody like at this point. I don't think Christine, because she's a bit of a dumb bulb, doesn't even realize that he's in love with her. Yeah, he. he so all right, let's let's talk about this incel thing. Because we've kind of been skating around it for a bit. What is an incel? Uh, an incel is a guy who thinks he's fly. He's also known as a buster. <laughs> is he always talking about what he wants? And just sits on his fat ass. Which, when I was a kid, always I always thought the line was, he always sits on his tukus, which gets a little <laughs> Yiddish for some reason in the middle of the line. No, we don't want no incels. Uh, so, I, so in case the audience doesn't know, uh, incel stands for involuntary celibate, and it's a kind of subculture that has cropped up recently on the internet of men, predominantly Western men, predominantly white Western men, cis, het, you know, I, just awful, awful guys who believe that they are owed sex they call themselves involuntary celibates because they're not having sex and it's no fault of their own the entire movement springs up around this idea that they're the nice guy they do so much they've put themselves out there and they treat women with respect and chivalry and blah 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 and they expect in return sex put the friendship tokens in why am i not getting the sex reward it, and it's 
so sad. And it's these these guys are unfortunately I'm I'm surprised there hasn't been a whole season of Law and Order SVU just dedicated to these guys. Because <laughs> because they've they've been doing some pretty awful things, right? They've yes, been shooting places up. Shootings. And and the reason we're saying this awful thing about the Phantom is because he has very much the same vibes as an insult. He's making the same kind of arguments of, well, I, I taught you how to sing, and I've given you the, the role of the lead soprano, and I've given so much to you, and all I want in return is for you to marry me and tell me I'm, I'm, I'm amazing while we live in our dungeon. Yes, and there's very much this enmeshment between them. In Phantom of the Opera, they sing, like, I sing and it comes out in your voice, and, and your voice comes out of my mouth, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. There's very much this idea that she is the only one who can fulfill his music, which he, eventually he, he writes a role just for her. Um, you know, I'm a musical genius. Only you can sing my music. Only you can make my music life. Why are you doing this to me? Yeah, and it's it really comes across in this scene where now that she and Raul have fallen in love and they've declared their love for each other to themselves, not to anyone mm -hmm. else, but to themselves. As far as they know, nobody else is there. The camera reminds <laughs> us several times that the Phantom is there. Yeah, I mean, we should just take it for granted that in any scene, the Phantom is always there. <laughs> Like, did you leave space in your dance for the Phantom? Um, <laughs> and he goes up on top of this Joel Schumacher statue and declares to the heavens that she'll be mine or else, I guess. There is, I, I do think that there is a range that you can play to the Phantom. Um, he's undoubtedly, you know, a violent, horrible murderer, but... I, I think you can, through him, um, get different ideas. It's the same as Shakespeare, right? Like, mm -hmm. these plays have been put on for hundreds of years because people aren't doing the exact same thing every time, and it's still giving you an interesting new take on the story. Um, but the the vibe that Gerard Butler is putting out is very much, uh, I hurt, she no love. I'm owed this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I'm certain that they're watching the stage play. This feeling of incelness is barely present, that he is, in fact, a dark and brooding and passionate figure. But if you're interested, I would recommend watching the 25th anniversary at the Royal Albert Hall, um, because Ramin Karamlu uh, plays the Phantomist. I just have a lot of emotions um, and it's an interesting comparison. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, that's something I would definitely like to look into myself. But, uh, yeah, here, again, Gerard Butler, not, maybe not the best choice for a phantom. So, the, the movie skips ahead, the play, I assume, would also skip ahead to the big masquerade ball, where Christine and Raoul are going to announce their engagement. And this number, this is the number that I wanted the movie to be set at for all of the movie, all these moving people, all these costumes, all these dance moves, there's voguing 
going on in this number. This is where I feel like you see the Batman pedigree coming through. Yes, absolutely. My only issue with it, and this is the one issue, they they are singing about all the colors that you can see in a mask. Yes, yes. And everyone is dressed in black and white and gold. It's Truman Capote's black and white ball. <laughs> and it's it's gorgeous. It absolutely is gorgeous. Like there's there's so much choreography happening with fans, uh, different masks. There's a subtle nod to cats in it. It's it's so much fun and you're watching all these characters moving in and out of each other you can see carlotta being disgusted but at the same time she's singing with everyone and again this is the level that i wanted the rest of this musical to be at it feels like it's the first time where the cinematography is matching the mood of the music where it starts out as this great happy uh, group number and then as mm-hmm. it goes on it gets more discordant and the cuts come faster and you start to feel Christine's paranoia about I feel like he's watching me but I don't see him anywhere. Um, and the frenetic energy of it. Absolutely. It's kind of like um, oh, almost like a um, like a religious ritual like a, a frenzy. I mean my my best and favorite comparison to this is the ballroom number from Labyrinth as well, right? They're, oh, they're like, and there's a very similar sort of like... Um, a dream-like kind of thing where you're, you're in Christine's kind of sort of point of view. And the reason that the cuts are happening so fast is because she's moving around and she's barely catching glimpses of people as she's moving. And this is a new world to her, right? Her being the star, her being celebrated absolutely so i'm all for this number i think like if you're going if you're going to look up any number from the movie online it's this and people like they say oh my god it's stupid it's vogue no it feels like it's the first time that it actually works with the show like yes give us bombast give us everything Mm mm-hmm and unfortunately, the celebration is cut very short when who should arrive but the Phantom in this beautiful crimson outfit. Everybody else is in black, white, and gold, and he's standing there in very much uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Mask of the Red Death kind of mood. I love this shot, too, because it's a straight on at the sort of fort staircase. And then before you even see him on screen, you hear his ah! theme. The camera goes to a Dutch angle and slowly tilts to reveal him at the top of the staircase. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. Again, this is this is where the movie should have been. It feels and like an actual horror show. Yes, because he's shown up and people are terrified. They don't, they don't even know he's real up until this moment. And in this moment, he is solidified. He is death incarnate. And he comes down the stairs and says, you guys all fucked up. Here's a, uh, the way that you're going to make it up to me. I've written my magnum opus, Don Juan, and you're going to perform it. And Carlotta is going to be in the chorus, and Christine is going to be the lead. And you will do it exactly as I say or else, and he promptly disappears in a puff of smoke and fire, a la uh, Wicked Witch of the West. (laughs) Yeah, but without the horrific injuries. Yeah, and he he drops down into a secret chamber, 
in, in the uh, staircase, and Raoul follows after him, only to find that it is now uh, like a, a mirrored hall with twisting, turning mirrors that, ooh, oh, the phantom's over here. Oh, no, it's not the phantom. That was a mirror. Oh, ooh, how will I get out? When all of a sudden, Madame Giry shows up and goes, this way, and takes him out of it. And this is where I, we I would the... like to point out, too, that before oh. Masquerade, uh, Masquerade is the first song after the intermission. Okay. Um, at, the, um, at the intermission, at the end of Act One, that's the when the chandelier falls in the stage show. So they're actually singing in um, Masquerade that they have a new chandelier. The chandelier in the movie only falls after, so it's sort of it's sort of giving this sense of rebirth, like we've had we've been through the bad thing, and now we're safe again. Okay, all right, I can see how that's. I mean, that's a great point to put a, an intermission in. Like, holy oh, yeah. shit! Like, we've just we have just crashed the chandelier into the stage, and then okay, we're gonna let the audience go out and ruminate on a crashed chandelier talk amongst themselves, come back, and we're going to come back in on the big, like, the whole cast is involved number. Which, it's just like the lyrics genius. of the, the colors, you know, they toast to a prosperous year to a new chandelier. Do they change it? No, of course they don't change it. We have to make it exactly like the show, except when it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, think, you'd think Weber, of all people, would be like, um, actually... Uh, it, uh, it, because we moved the chandelier to the final act, could we change the lyric? And by all means, please, audience, correct us if we're wrong. Um, but little oversight there. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where Madame Giry decides to fill us in on the backstory of the Phantom. No, you don't understand. People were mean to him. Yeah, he was deformed as a kid and kept in a cage. And yes, it, it is. We are all for not letting kids be in cages. <laughs> I am anti-kids being in cages. I would also like to say, though, that I am pro. If I go to a freak show, I want my money's worth. I do not want to be shown a kid in a cage with eczema and pink eye. And, and a burlap sack. Yes. So, you know, she, she talks about how when she was a young ballerina, she got taken to this freak show and uh, shown the devil's child. And then, oh, no, he's a kid in a burlap sack and he's trying to make a monkey with little symbols. But then his owner, father, something comes in and smacks it out of his hand, at which point the very young baby phantom comes and strangles him to death and he escapes with Madame Giry. And I guess she's kind of kept him in the catacombs of the opera house this whole time. As like her pet. Yeah. And I, I don't know, like, is, is there supposed to be like, does Madame Giry secretly love him? No, this is all added for the film. Oh, okay. So this is brand new for the film. No, in the in the show, Madame Giry, again, like, she saves Raoul and she says, here's the deal with this weirdo. But all of this about the uh, the greater knowledge of Madame Giry and the Phantom's relationship, completely invented. Okay, because I was getting a bit of a, 
maybe the reason she's letting this go on is because she is part of the love triangle that is the Phantom and Christine. She pines after the Phantom, the Phantom pines after Christine, Christine, I know she, she doesn't exactly pine after anyone. She just kind of has love thrust upon her. She floats from scene to scene. Yes. So they, they do sort of uh, take that approach in Love Never Dies, except with Meg instead of Madame Jerry. Oh God. <laughs> I I hate Love Never Dies. Love Never Dies <laughs> is what if Phantom of the Opera, but the music wasn't even good. Oh no. Yes. It's like it's like a, a a fan fiction version of the sequel to Phantom of the Opera. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber saying, Sarah, see how dumb you were to leave me? You never should have left me. Oh no. Yes. <laughs> so um yeah, we're we're out of there, we know the backstory and now they're like, okay, we're going to put on this Don Juan movie, uh, not movie, to play, but we have a cunning plan. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the play goes on, and you get to see some of the opening. It's, um, it's a thing. He definitely wrote a musical. <laughs> he wrote a self-insert. He, it's very discordant. It's very clear that this opera is not the taste of anyone in the audience. Oh, we should go, we, uh, we skipped over the part where uh, Christine visits her father's grave in her horniest morning dress. Oh, yeah. Like, I completely blacked that out when I was a teenager watching this. <laughs> and I guess I kind of just blacked it out again because it's, it feels like a full 10 minutes of her sad, that her dad's still dead. Another case where the phantom appears to her and she's like, huh? It's like, girl, <laughs> what? Just let him take her at this point. No, but he's he's got to be, you know, it's it's more about the uh, the drama of it all for the phantom as opposed to actually getting stuff done. That's the thing. Raul is like, oh, no, Christine's. I don't know. It only makes sense if you think that she's somehow hypnotized or something like that, I think. Um, Christine's gone off to the graveyard. I must follow her because we're protecting her from the Phantom right now. Um, mm -hmm. The Phantom does show up. He and Raoul have a sword fight. Raoul wins. Uh, he's about to, I don't know, maybe kill the Phantom. And I, says, I would have hoped so. Christine says, no, don't. And then we immediately cut back to the opera where they're like, well, we have to put on the show because it's, this is how we're going to capture the Phantom. You just had him. You just had him. He was right there. <laughs> I will go to my room and I will get a gun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just, it's wild. Some, some of the, but again, in, in, in a musical, in an opera especially, logic has to make way for emotion. And what is more emotional than the, no, don't kill him. That would make you just as bad as him. It's like, no, that's, that's not how this works sometimes. This, this guy already has, been, has a death count. Yeah, he's been killing and he keeps threatening to kill more people. And I'm pretty sure he wants to, like, steal you away and force you to be his bride. You've seen his wax sex doll already. Yeah, it's like... At this point, I 
audience, please, I am not condoning actual things like this. <laughs> I'm talking about narrative things like this. Just give him a quick little stabby stab in the grave. Oh, great. He's in a graveyard. You can immediately get rid of him. <laughs> but they don't. And they have to put on the opera as well because, you know, Raul has a plan, I guess. Yeah, so they cover all of the exits. And we see, like, the first three songs of the opera, which, like, did we really need to see it? No. No, we didn't. Like, we, we know what's going to happen, right? And it does. Phantom comes out. He kills the lead actor and cleverly disguises himself as him. And it, this this isn't fooling anyone. Gerard Butler's a full foot taller than this guy and a hundred like pounds a, less. Yes. And he's, uh, Pianchi has a ridiculous accent, which the Phantom does not have. No, it, like immediately people in the audience or, or people on stage, people on the stage, I, I get the audience not reacting to it because they'd be like, oh, maybe it's part of the play. But somebody on stage should have been like, hey, that's not the lead singer. Maybe we should get him. And they keep showing us shots of like snipers lined up to take the shot on the Phantom. But he spends most of this song on the other side of the stage from Christine. They're barely touching. It feels like it would have been so much easier to take the shot at any point, and because that's what their plan was, and they just don't. Mm. It's just... It's not great. <laughs> it really isn't. I feel uh, like you're supposed to be won over by how sexy the song is, which it normally is a very sexy song, um, but not in this. It's... No. Um, man was a teenager and they both seem a little mm. uncomfortable yeah it's like i i really appreciate when films and casting directors take their time to be like we got to make sure there's chemistry here because we want you we want you to root for this couple <laughs> and it feels like in this case andrew lloyd weber went she can sing and she's an unknown and joel schumacher's like Gerard Butler's kind of hot, and I guess we can teach him to sing. Eh. I love this because in so many ways it feels like a prequel to Cats. Oh, oh, Cats. Idris oh, Elba my... is hot. Let's cast oh, him. Oh, God. And he is hot. He's basically naked in that film. It's the <sighs> only time Idris Elba has ever taken off his clothes in a movie, and I thought, oh, God, no, put them back. <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, we'll, we will get to cats. Yes, we will get to cats. But oh. uh, and I, I have been sort of steering away from addressing um, the cat in the room this whole time. But so many of the choices made for this movie feel like they were everything where they they scaled back here. They scaled way way up in cats, and I think cats is a better movie for it. Honestly. Oh, absolutely. I would rather a movie be unabashedly balls to wall like why not let's let's just go for it as opposed to oh do you think the audience would like it i don't know let's let's pull back on the the, the over the topness just a bit and yes i think cats is successful in its in its in, in inability to be unsuccessful whereas yes, fandom never... feels like it it feels like it's been made for 
how how broad of an audience can we get this to? Exactly. It feels like like in the parts where characters normally sing dialogue, and in the movie, Joel Schumacher has them just say it, which is weird because all of a sudden they're rhyming and it doesn't sound like normal dialogue. Um, it feels like they're second guessing themselves and they're like, oh, you know, it's the aughts and people are really into realism and stuff like that. How will we make this happen? And every single moment of that in Cats becomes, fuck it, guys, we've got a ton of cocaine. This is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't wait to talk about Cats. <laughs> <laughs> I really can't because it genuinely gives me a tremendous amount of pleasure. So... Uh, the Phantom is it does his thing on stage and it's, it's supposed to be sexy and then he and Christine ooh, abscond through a secret passage ooh. after she takes off his mask in front of everyone and he's hideous well you know he's okay I, I have eczema and I have legitimately uh, I'm fortunate to not have eczema on my face but I have legitimately had patches of eczema that look worse than this yeah, like, I, I get it. I, I can understand how somebody would be, you know, very self-critical about themselves looking like that. But I'm fairly certain in the stage versions, the, 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 the makeup effect that they give the Phantom is so much more than this. Oh, absolutely. He's got a similar thing where it looks like he's bald with just a few wisps of hair. Um, but, you know, his eyes are much more sunken in. Um, he usually has, like, prosthetics on his lips to make his lips sort of um, uh, asymmetrical and puffy. Um, he, uh, he might even have bones sticking through, that sort of thing. This is not something that you see on Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler looks like he had a bad sunburn. Yeah, and I mean, somehow her pulling off the mask has also pulled off his his wig, his toupee, and now his slightly blonde, wispy hair is also sticking through. And at the same time, you're still looking at it and going like, but you're still a fairly handsome dude. And he's able-bodied, and you know, he's tall and fit and all, like, and... If the story is telling us he has a beautiful voice, then he has a beautiful voice. <laughs> like, and, dude, but, get over but, yourself. What what weirds me out about this is that there's tons of people at this time who who have come back from wars and have had parts of their faces blown off, and they're wearing prosthetic parts of their faces on. And it's it's a fairly common occurrence, right? Because mm -hmm. the, before the advent of plastic surgery, this could easily, easily be written off as, oh, you know, I was accidentally shot in one of the wars that have happened around this time. And people would just be like, oh, you brave man. Anyway, uh, what's that? You wanted some sexy outfits? Cool, let's get those done for you. Oh, you've got a shit ton of money. He does, uh, on the boat, when he's ferrying Christine, he does actually wear a fedora at one point, too, which is just another notch in the incel column. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I'm just, I'm looking at the mask that he wears in the musical, and it's it's huge. It covers up most of his face, whereas in the movie, it's like, eh, you know, it's a quarter. He's also wearing a domino mask during the opera scene because he's pretending to be Tianji. So, like, his entire cheek is visible. His mouth is fine. His his 
but he can still see through that eye because you know he he has a hole in the mask he's a functional adult and somehow he's hinged all of his monstrous deformity on eh, just you know a little bit of bad skin i guess yeah okay well hey hey guys out there if you're listening and you feel you have a monstrous deformity uh, it's probably not that bad. <laughs> You're beautiful just the way you are. Yeah. Do not kidnap that young ingenue, please. That's the thing. So, I feel like I feel like maybe they were they were trying to keep it sexy, but I feel like they undersold the whole thing and just made his personality that much worse with this choice. I know. I know. It's it's another nail in the coffin of it. But anyway, he he absconds with her into the catacombs. Raul follows. uh, And while he's absconding, the place is burning down. He has now, he has also managed to crash the chandelier into the stage. Fire is raging everywhere. People are running. The gendarmes are there to try and chase him down too. And Raul finally catches up with them in the catacombs where they have a very wet battle i guess and it's not even really a battle no it's raul consistently not following the one rule he was told keep the um, hand at the level of your eyes and maybe he just can't understand her because she's the only person with an accent you know it's true it is a very american uh slash british france um and so he immediately gets captured immediately gets tied up in what we're told is a threatening way. It's it's very it's a very um, romance novel cover kind of way where his shirt is open and you can see his chest and his hair is t- you know tussled a bit and he's tied up and he's he's wet and you'd think yeah this could be real sexy except it's still. <laughs> weirdly not sexy any of this does Jules Schumacher just not know how to like what heterosexual people think is sexy no you just you just copy paste gay sexy onto the other genders and it works just the same we saw Chris O'Donnell's butt and nipples real good in that Robin <laughs> suit okay can't couldn't you have just copy pasted that onto Raul a little bit Right, make the pants tighter. It feels like when when Raul is all wet and tied up, and the Phantom is threatening him, and Christine is way on the other side of the set. It feels like there's the first spark of something. It's not really there, but it's the closest thing we've had the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Especially so, since uh, <laughs> Raul is not in any danger at all. No, I, I mean there's there's a scene where he falls into a pit of water and. A big iron grate tries to smush him down, but he manages to get out. He's fine. And now he's here, and the three of them sing at each other. And they, the Phantom being all like, you have to choose me or him. If you choose me, everyone lives, except for the people who died. But if you choose <laughs> him, everyone dies. And Christine just goes, well, I, I choose him because he's not an incel. And really, that that is her argument. She's just like, you've done awful things. I'm going. No, this is the that's the ultimate result. But that's actually not her first choice. 
her first choice is, okay, to save everybody, I will do it. And then she kisses him. Oh. Yeah, I guess my gay brain was just like, don't need this. <laughs> well, that's the thing, too. It doesn't feel utterly, it doesn't feel ultimately monumental in any real way because there's, he immediately reverses his decision because she kisses him and he's like, oh, people can be nice. <sighs> yeah. So he lets Raul go and he lets Christine go. And he's he's so upset. He's so sad. He smashes a couple of mirrors and while singing. And oh, oh, the one thing I did want to bring up about his singing. It's very evident that Gerard Butler cannot hit and maintain certain notes. Oh, absolutely. So they have at like at big pivotal moments just gone like, okay, Gerard, um, could you uh, could you just hit that note as best as you can, and then we'll auto tune the crap out of it. He's like, "All right, yeah." Oh wait, no, he's Scottish. He's, You're that, lads. <laughs> <That's a> rough... <laughs> now this this is a phantom. Groundskeeper Willie is phantom. That's <laughs> Who do you think you are, Christine? Coming down here, grabbing me mask. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> so, so he smashes it, and I guess like he, she comes back for one final look. She's all, <laughs> I guess you're hot, and then that's kind of it. This is where the stage play ends. In the movie, they continue with the framing device some more. Raoul goes and visits Christine's grave, and there's a rose there, and oh, the phantom was there the whole time, which I guess would be spooky if it was like guest on the room, and we were like, was the phantom real? But we know the phantom's real. We've been dealing with him for the whole movie. Yeah, and it's not really a surprise that he would have survived that, because, you know, catacombs. Exactly. A lot of water. It's not like they burned down, just the opera house burned down. <laughs> and and that's it. Like, there's Patrick Wilson in his old man makeup, and and um, the movie ends. So, uh, my question to you, Sarah, is, is, is it camp? <laughs> um, rewatching this movie and all two plus hours of it mm -hmm. uh, in which I went, oh my God, Sam's going to hate me for this. Because <laughs> it, was, it was a real chore for me to get through. I wasn't in a great mood yesterday when I was watching it. So I was just like, okay, let's get this done. And I'm just like, every time, no, no. Why did you do this? Why did you make this choice? I would argue that masquerade is camp. Yes. And everything else fails to achieve on a basic filmmaking level um, any sort of enjoyment or free soul that camp requires. So I, I think Masquerade is camp. I think the show as a whole is camp. I do not think this movie is camp. I would like to agree with you. I, I hope to see the, the, the stage play at some point because I think that the stage play is it's most likely so much more than what this film is, uh, as you've attested several times. Um, 
I masquerade as camp because, oh my God, it's got voguing in it. They it hired... feels like the first time I was carried away <sighs> by the film. Yes. Uh, Carlotta is camp. Mini Driver is <laughs> camp. But this movie is not camp. And I'm, I'm sorry, audience, if you, well, if you sat through us with the, uh, on this. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just disappointingly so. And we're sorry, Joel Schumacher, wherever you may be in, in the ether at the moment. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, you're sitting on a pile of money, so not so sorry about you. He's also threatening to open theaters before COVID's done. So Andrew Lloyd Webber can go fuck himself. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of reasons for that. We will, we will revisit more Andrew Lloyd Webber in the future because we do have to get through cats and I'm sure we, we will have to do Starlight Express at some point. Yes. I do not know anything about Starlight Express. I'm excited for it. Uh, uh, Oh, I am just excited for Roller Skates the Musical. (laughs) <laughs> the the musical that still to this day, even after Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, has the most injuries per <laughs> performance in any time it's been performed. There is a special theater in Germany built just for Starlight Express. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen clips of it and I'm just like, this is amazing. How is this not the only form of entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> when we're all dead and gone and Sir Andy lives on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, in a future episode, we will be re- revisiting uh, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber and his various other uh, attempts at things, successful or otherwise. Mr. Uh, but, Too Much is never enough. Yeah. But uh, until then, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. I think so. Thank you for joining us today on our exploration of Phantom of the Opera. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice. Leave a star rating or review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes. And next week, we will be attacking Rhinestone. I'm excited for this. (laughs) Okay. I mean, neither of us have seen Rhinestone. I only just learned about it last year. And it has been on like the top of my list of, I need to see this. I need to see this with people because it is a Pygmalion story told with Sylvester Stallone and one Miss Dolly Parton. Queen of our hearts. And the amazing part about it is Dolly Parton is the one teaching Sylvester Stallone to do stuff. I'm so (laughs) glad I was not conscious in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's going to be a wild ride, I'm sure. If if anything, it won't be boring. Absolutely. But it it will be something to discuss, whether we like it or not. (laughs) So you can continue the discussion about Phantom of the Opera on our Twitter. I am at Reese Indigo. Reese is spelt the Welsh way, R-H-Y-S. And I'm at Sour Citrus Lady. You can follow the pod on at Is It Camp Pod. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp. Ta-ra! Bye!
like it. Not too cam. No, not the way you do it.